everyone, and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. I'm Lahiru. And I'm Stan. And today we're going to continue with something that we did in a previous episode, which was categorizing uh, various topics. So we did a respiratory physiology categorization and people found that really useful. So we thought, you know, we'd go through a couple more topics in, you know, some of the next few episodes. And for this one, we'll go through neuro categories. Now, there wasn't actually that many that t- kind of tended uh, or lent themselves to, you know, really great categorization. But I thought we'd go through some of these anyway and a couple of mnemonics for some more maybe esoteric esoteric short answer question topics that uh, we'd seen as well uh yeah so anyway first of all how how you going stan yeah good thanks i mean if um anyone's sort of listening and wondering why the audio sounds a little bit different we're actually doing it remotely because uh many of you sort of may not know but um or many of you who are in melbourne know that we're currently in lockdown our fifth lockdown lockdown number five 5.0 Yeah, 5.0. So we so I'm doing this at home via a phone and Lars at home and so if the if the sound quality sounds a little bit uh, different that's the reason why. Yeah, like my microphone's is beautiful, you know, road road microphone and you've got the iPhone. Yeah, I've got the iPhone it's sitting <laughs> on my chest. So hopefully it sounds all right. But to, to be um, honest, it's pretty it's pretty amazing that we can we can do this remotely and that's why we've been able to interview people from interstate. So yeah, it's uh it's not too bad, is it? Yeah, joys of technology. So I think, you know, it's something to utilize and it's something that I think that has really helped with, um, you know, dealing with this lockdown and still remain connected and still be able to produce great content and still um, uh, be able to educate ourselves. Yeah, um, We've go. got a performance tip. Is that right, La? You've, you've yeah, got that's right. So it's amazing how, we, you know, we've been giving performance tips reasonably regularly and we've got to make sure that we don't repeat stuff. So we've, we've made a list of the different performance tips that we've, that we've had. And the thing that really resonated with me this week was the fact of getting a mentor. So I've just been through a couple of weeks of um, shortlisting applicants, interviewing applicants for the HMO3 crit care year. And that's a really, really you know, tough process for the people doing it, I've got to say. And it just, it just reminds me that when I was going through every stage of my career, I had mentors. And so... For this exam, especially, I think having a mentor, having a couple of mentors, people who've done this uh, recently or who've done this a few years ago, I think it's just really great to have those people to support you um, throughout this time. Uh, yeah, so some of the some of the things that I think are really important. I think there's this principle that if you speak and get advice from people who've already done things before you've done it, you can you know you, you you've got like this framework or a roadmap, and I think that's a really you know, really good thing, especially when there's a lot of complexity in what we're doing, whether it's your anesthetic career or, or your, any career, really. If you find out what the person who's at the end point has done, if you look at the destination you want to get to and you see someone there and or maybe see a few people there, if you ask each of those people how they got there, you'll see a bit of a range of things and they might be, they might be able to educate you on the, on the ways that they got there, the pitfalls, the um, things that they did, uh, the good things, the bad things, and Hopefully you won't go through, you know, some of those mistakes. You won't get into those dead ends or the things that didn't actually make a difference. Um, I think this exam is really one of those things, really complex, lots of things to learn. And having a mentor, someone who's done it before you to help guide you through the process and just tell you that you're on the right track or the wrong track is is really useful. Um, is that something you had, Stan? Um, I, think it's, I think it is important to have. And what I found was... The study, you know, the study group that I had 
uh, we actually had, I actually had two study groups for the primary exam. So I had um, mm-hmm. one person who was studying with me for physiology and then another person who was studying with me for pharmacology. And the the um, the person who was studying out, who was studying with me for pharmacology, I'll shout out to him, Herman Lim. He actually had passed, this was the time when you could actually sit uh, both exams separately. So he had passed the physiology exam already. And he was somewhat like a mentor to me because he, because of his experience already with the exam and just with, you know, the process going through it, you know, it, it really gave me a lot of insight into, you know, how to prepare and what was to be expected as well. And then the, the, the person who I was studying with, with um, for pharmacology, so he also had passed um, physiology, oh, sorry, so Herman, sorry, beg your pardon. Herman had passed pharmacology and I was studying uh, physiology with him. Mm-hmm. The other um, trainee that I was studying with, Chi, Chi Lee, so shout out to him. He, we were studying, uh, f- we were studying pharmacology together. So he had passed physiology. But you just you just did this perfectly, didn't you? <laughs> but, but but hadn't passed pharmacology yet. So in fact, you know, now that I think about it, you know, I, I had two mentors. It was it was really perfectly set up, and I agree with what you said. You know, just having that insight and that experience about how to prepare and what was to be expected really made a difference uh, in terms of my preparation as well. So I think that it is really important to have someone there, especially someone who's recently passed the exam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that a lot of candidates who had passed their exams already, they actually want to give back and they really want to help, uh, you know, the next generation of trainees. And a lot of the experiences that we feel during the exam, you know, we think are unique to ourselves and we feel, you know, we feel the pressure and we feel overwhelmed. Uh, and these these feelings are actually feelings that, previous trainees have gone through. And I think it's important to, you know, have that someone there just to discuss with it and, um, mm-hmm. you know, just to sort of work through all those, um, all those feelings and all those thoughts and really come through, you know, come, come, um, with a solution. Mm-hmm. Now, oh, you go. I, I was going to say, we, we've got a formal mentor program at our, at our hospital in Western health. I, I guess the question is, you know, you know, I, I never, I never had a formal uh, mentor relationship, but I know I think that's been something that's developed over the last couple of years to have like this formal mentor mentee relationship. Mm-hmm. W- what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know if I've got any good opinions about it, except the fact that I feel like mentors happen naturally. Uh, it's you know, it's very. My gut feeling is that. You know, I've I've been lucky. Let's say you're a person with lots of people in 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 your environment who are willing to be mentors. I think that could be a really effective process. Just because you know the circumstances that I'm in means that I'll I'll meet someone who I get along with, who I have trust with, rapport with, and that's just something that's that's natural. I think uh, maybe some people don't have the, the opportunity of having those people around them, and I think in that sense, generally people are very generous a lot of the time. So if they haven't found a mentor having this program that kind of puts people together might be a really great opportunity for people who, you know, aren't as lucky in their environment. 
Um, but, I, but I think generally speaking, for, for personally, mentor, mentors have always just kind of appeared at the right time. I've been really lucky about that. But if I didn't have that, I'd, I'd really like a, a formal system where I could just link in with people who are really willing to give back. And I know that there are a lot of programs out there that, you know, just linking people who want to give back. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a really great amount of gain for both parties. It's not like it's just the mentee getting all this stuff from the mentor. I think the mentor learns a lot and is able to give back, feels very good about that. I think it's a very important two-way, two-way relationship. Mm, I agree. Actually, all right. Other, so, um, actually, the other thing I was thinking was, especially in this exam specifically, it was so complex with so many pitfalls that I think the mentor, the person who's already done it beforehand, the best thing about it was asking them, what, what do I need to do? You know, what's, what is your opinion of what I need to do so that I don't start the wrong way? So I think that was really useful. And the fact that at no point was I really sure that I was doing the right thing. It wasn't like I, after, after a month of study, I could remember enough to pass the exam. And so I just constantly asked the mentor, look, I've, you know, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. Uh, am I doing enough? And they said, yep, don't worry. Everyone's like that. You, you know, you still don't start remembering until a few months before the exam. And so that kind of reassurance that as long as I was trusting the process, that it would all fall into place. As long as I put in the hours, it would fall into place. That, that was really valuable. So I didn't lose heart. No, that sounds like a great idea. And uh, I highly encourage it. And, you know, it's something that, as I said, we've formalized at our hospital just because we know the importance of it. Yeah, well, let's get started with neuro categories, and it's something that you've prepared, and I think that, you know, mm. from what I see, it works really well. It just gives you that framework on mm-hmm. how to approach uh, these questions or these topics. So, mm. the first one is um, factors that determine intracranial pressure. Yeah, so this is probably the most important one that came out from the neuro from the neuro. Anesthesia, to, uh, you know, short answer questions. Um, a lot of the other ones, I, I found that they didn't really lend themselves to categori- categorization the way respiratory did. So I thought we'd focus on the factors that determine ICP. So, you know, just just to give a bit of a background, it, it's often the Munro-Kelly doctrine is often referred to in this circumstance, um, and the fact that you know the skull is a rigid container containing blood, CSF, and brain, and a change in volume of one component necessitates a uh, compensatory change in the volume of one or more of the other components if the ICP is to remain constant. And that's so that's briefly the Munro-Kelly doctrine. Uh, and then really the components of that are how I'd ca- categorize this. So you have the components of brain, CSF, and blood. Now within blood, I found that there was quite a few things. So that's probably the main component or the main part of that categorization that can require you know a bit more detail and for me blood is made up of then metabolic factors so the amount of blood uh, would depend on metabolic factors co2 oxygen tension uh, the nervous system or sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system venous outflow uh, as well as other mechanical things like such as sneezing and coughing that can cause a temporary increase in the amount of blood in the in the space um now, uh, how, how do you, is, is this the kind of framework you've used in the past? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so clinically, I guess, um, you know, if you sort of think about this, is that if you have someone with a very tight brain, and often patients have tight brains mainly because of brain parenchyma. Wouldn't you agree? Like mm-hmm. either um, increased tissue content mm-hmm. um, from a space-occupying lesion mm-hmm. or, or potentially, you know, bleeding, so, hmm. really, the things that we can control mm-hmm. 
are really the other things, which are CSF and cerebral blood volume. Exactly. That's right. I was going to no, I was going to ask you. And, and so, you know, like I was going to get how you sort of approach these patients, you know, when, when you've got someone with a tight brain and knowing that those are the two things, you know, with in regards to the Monroe Kelly doctrine, which you can actually, um, which can actually sort of modulate with anesthesia. Yes. You know, what, what are your, what are your sort of um, techniques and tips and tricks in yeah. terms of doing that? Absolutely. Um, so, you're re- you know, this is really practical stuff. It's stuff that after learning in the first part, I thought, you know what, a lot of the first part isn't practical, but this is definitely practical. So, I guess the first thing is the fact that the surgeon is, let's say it is a tumor that's causing an increase in ICP, you know, the surgical treatment, resection of the tumor, or even a craniotomy to release that space, uh, that, that reminds me that the brain category has a very definitive treatment, as well as, you know, a craniectomy or some kind of decompressive um, surgical procedure can help that process, making the skull not as rigid or taking brain out. Um, CSF is also pretty easy because often you can have a EVD. Uh, in, so right. having a ventricular drain to remove C- CSF is also a really straightforward way where you can just decrease the CSF content. Um, and that's again something that you could you may manage, or maybe the um, you know someone in the, the neuro nurse or the neuro doctor would manage. Um, and there's a you know very specific kind of um, intervention, uh, the EVD, the the drain attached to an implement that measures pressure, but also allows you to drain that as well. But finally, the blood factors are probably the most relevant to us. And what I what I find is I just follow this framework, which tries to address these. So literally, it's um you know, physical factors, uh, physiological and potentially pharmacological factors. So physical, phys and pharm allows me to then address these systematically. So the physical factors are things like positioning and anything that might impede venous outflow from, from the brain, from the cranium. So if the patient has a head down position or a supine position, putting the head up would decrease the amount of blood co- blood content, therefore decrease the ICP. And you might want to do that rapidly if there's a tight brain situation. Uh, likewise, sometimes when we tie our endotracheal tubes and we use, ta- we, you, we use ties, and that can cause undue pressure, or maybe there's a C-spine collar causing undue pressure and compression on the venous return, and simply loosening that might um, help things. Sometimes you might have extra PEEP, uh, so positive end expiratory pressure when ventilating, and your ability to just give optimal people decrease the PEEP, again, might help help the situation. And finally, if the patient is coughing and bucking, uh, so these physical factors of increasing intrathoracic pressure can again increase your intracranial pressure. So having the patient not doing that, having them well paralyzed, decreasing their intrathoracic pressure would again be a way you can easily solve this. So those are, those are to me all the physical factors. Yeah, so now with the physiological factors, it's pretty much trying to make everything normal. I think most people think of... Increase in uh, CO2, increase in PaCO2 is causing uh, increase in blood volume, therefore a rapid increase in your intracranial pressure. So having a low normal PaCO2, roughly around 30, maybe less for a short period of time, is what most anesthetists would aim at. Uh, So potentially an end tidal CO2 of 35, so 30 to 35. Um, and also making sure your oxygenation is good because we know that if you know high CO2 or decreased oxygen or high, high or, or low pH uh, can cause an increase in blood volume, therefore increase your ICP. Now, other things, so that's other, other physiological variables I would think about would be blood pressure. So when you look at the autoregulation plateau, and you can probably Google this where 
between a set of blood pressures, roughly around, you know, a map of 60 to 160, you have pretty even autoregulation. But when the brain is, you know, has trauma to it or something else is going on, either anesthesia, trauma, infection, uh, some other kind of pathology, this autoregulation has its problems and, and doesn't work as effectively. So suddenly, as you increase your blood pressure, you may actually increase the amount of um, the, the amount of blood in the brain, therefore increasing intracranial pressure. So it can be a really tough balance, really, trying to make sure your CPP and your MAP is absolutely adequate for brain perfusion, but not so high that it causes a, a, a you know a really detrimental ICP increase. And and that's a really good point, Lar, because I think that's one of the challenging things about managing a patient with a high ICP mm-hmm. is that you don't want your MAP to be too low. And at the same time, you don't want your map to be too high because if it's too high, you're actually going to worsen the ICP, aren't you? Whereas mm-hmm. the problem is if you have it too low, you're not going to get enough um, blood flow mm-hmm. through to actually perfuse the brain because of the high ICP. And that can actually worsen things because, you know, if you're not getting enough, you know, oxygen transfer across, you're going to get ischemia, which can lead to more um, brain swelling, which then you know, increases the sympathetic outflow, which increases the map. And so um, that just becomes like a vicious cycle. So mm-hmm. that, that's really one of the, the really challenging things about um, managing patients with, you know, a high ICP. Yeah. And sometimes have you noticed that it can be very unsatisfying as well after you've got everything normal, you know, as anesthetist, we, we, you know, we hopefully think we have the solutions to most things, you know, blood pressure drops, gives them aramine, blood pressure goes up. But I found ICP management, after I've done everything, sometimes it, despite of everything I did, the ICP would still remain high and really it's just up up to the body to heal itself naturally and surgical correction. Do you ever find that? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think, you know, in those cases, um, you know, I, I try to maintain a map of um, 70. Mm-hmm. And really it's all about just doing that tightly whilst allowing the surgeons to do their job because you know that that's going to be the main that's going to make the main difference you know yeah exactly. and so it's all about just maintaining the map and, and i think there were other things that you were going to talk about as well which were very important as well to control yes um during this process and, and right. what 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 are those yeah so so we've gone through the physical we've gone through physiological and now the pharmacological so um there's there's a few agents that you could use, including mannitol or hypertonic saline, so three times normal saline. And so giving these will cause a change in or a shift from your interstitial fluid uh, into your intravascular fluid to help decrease the interstitial um, or, I guess, brain, brain content of fluid, and that could also decrease ICP. I think those are the main ones that I've seen used. Uh, yeah, so hypertonic saline and mannitol. Um, yeah. And and potentially even furosemide, but really, uh, I'm not sure what the evidence. I'm not sure what the evidence. I've seen. I've seen evidence for, I believe, one milligram per kilogram of mannitol, but not necessarily mm. any evidence for the rest of them. I, I think when you're hitting that line, you know, you, you're really sort of um, doing everything you can. Mm. Um, and and those are more sort of theoretical um, pharmacological agents, and it's more like a it's more like a temporary measure. Mm. Um, just to buy you just maybe just a bit a little time but I, I agree with you I think the the evidence for those is the evidence is um, it's not clear is it yeah it's probably not that strong I remember yeah teaching neuroanesthesia and yeah and Artusio's had certain amounts of mannitol that had some evidence but 
you know, it's, it's one of those things that a surgeon knows this area very well. If they, if they require it for that temporary relief of the ICP, then, then you do it. Um, but we're not sure about the long-term benefit. But that, in regards to that, for this short answer question, having a really good definition for Monroe Kelly, or the Monroe Kelly Doctrine, understanding brain, CSF and blood factors are the mainstay, and just having then an approach to talking about each of those factors. And, you know, sometimes these, these questions may get more, uh, I guess, clinically relevant. And I found that the f- physical, physiological and pharmacological ways of managing blood as well as CSF drainage, um, brain, or you know, affecting the brain structures by resection, and then potentially a decompressive craniac, craniectomy to remove that rigid skull. Uh, and these would be this would be the framework that I'd use. Now, now the other physiological factors you mentioned, um, and you should probably expand on. Mm. So I think you mentioned CO two and and oxygen. Yes. Uh, do Do you want to expand on on those on those factors and and how we control them? Yeah, absolutely. So. Really, so CO2 is a function of production, uh, you know, in- increased production or increased ventilation. So uh, CO2 will rise with increased production, but generally speaking in, 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 these, in these patients, their production is kept constant. Now, so the real variable that we have to change is ventilation. So if we increase minute alveolar ventilation, either by, you know, minute vent- so tidal volume or increasing the rest rate, and we lower the end tidal CO2, we lower the PaCO2, and then this will decrease the blood volume. Is that is that what you're getting at, Stan? Yeah. yeah and cool. Like, what's the, I, I know when I went through um, when I went through my training, we were we were actually taught to hyperventilate patients with tight brains to get mm. their CO2 down. Mm. But I think the evidence for that is that it's not that helpful, is it? That it's 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 better to actually maintain a normal CO2 than to hyperventilate. And, and obviously to avoid hypercarbia because hypercarbia will increase your um, your blood volume. Is, yeah. that, is that right? I think so. Uh, w- the previous thing of hyperventilation, that's out of favor. I think most people uh, kind of aim at a low normal CO2, but really, again, we, we are just doing things normally, which is funny. No matter how much we seem to try and alter physiology, it seems like being normal is just the way to go in almost every circumstance. Mm. Yeah, But same as oxygenation, really. So. Well, yeah, and oxygenation is a simple one, is it? Just just avoid... Um, yeah, hypoxemia. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's, that's relatively straightforward. And I wonder about this. So in, in the instance of, you know, de- increasing hypoxemia, so your stats decreasing, you know, below 92, below 90%, then I'd do all my usual things, you know, increase my FiO2 and try to manage any other causes of shunt and otherwise that would cause this. And I, I wonder if it got to the point where PEEP was the one thing I w- that I required to, you know, prevent atelectasis and improve oxygenation, there'll be, there would be another balance. So this, this could be a uh, you know, risk-benefit type question where how much PEEP would you have to give to maintain your oxygenation and then how much PEEP, how, how would that, uh, you know, amount of PEEP affect the ICP and the venous return? Um, and, uh, you know, you, you'd be able to measure both variables and find, find uh, you know, an optimal, optimal space for that. But that could be a problem in, in someone with a tight brain and sick lungs. Absolutely. It's a very challenging situation because, you know, you have to manage the PEEP, manage the blood pressure, and then think about all those factors which affect oxygenation and ultimately um, it's going to affect the brain um, oxygenation as well. So... This is why, you know, physiology is so complex. It is so complex, but it's so interrelated. And it really gives you a lot of insight into, you know, the thought processes 
um, that we have to balance during these cases. So the next one I think we're going to talk about is the functions of CSF. Yeah, that's that's right. And um, so th- yeah, the next two things these were these were short answer questions over the last few. Years. So the functions of CSF and the neuroendocrine functions of the brain. And I thought I'd just get, I'd just show you know, it's it's one of those things where it's probably hard to picture. Uh, it's very. It's probably a little bit hard to memorize all of these functions. So I remember that I, I used these kind of mnemonics pretty effectively, and sometimes they didn't make a lot of sense. But for me, they seem to work. And I know that it doesn't work for everyone. I think Stan, you were saying how at one point you need to have mnemonics for the mnemonics. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> so this was my my part two exam. My part two exam. I had a file of mnemonics, and I had so many mnemonics. I think I was just totally confused about the actual <laughs> mnemonics. And and so, look, I, but I think they're great. I really do think they are useful. Mm. And, and I think, you know, some candidates or some trainees really find them useful. But, you know, these are all techniques, tips and tricks. They don't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that, you know, they've got their place. Yeah, and so I think for long-term memory formation, you know, all the techniques we've already talked about, but, you know, understanding something, being able to picture it in your mind, that's probably the best thing. It takes more effort. I remember using these mnemonics pretty effectively, probably for more of a short-term short-term memory retention type thing. Um, so they, it helped me to short-term increase my memory function, but then for long-term uh, memory later on where I understood stuff better. So with functions of CSF, I just remember writing down this list. You know, it buffers the ICP. It, uh, it enables a constant ionic environment. It has a protective function just due to buoyancy, um, acid-base function, interstitial proteins, nutrition, and toxic removal, toxin removal. And as I was arranging these, I was like, I've got to, I've got to find a way to remember this. I just cannot remember this. Um, off off the top of my head, so I just put the letters, you know, B C paint, B C P A I N T. So B for buffers, I C P. C for constant ionic environment. P for protective. A for acid base function. I for interstitial proteins. N for nutrition. And T for toxin removal. And so, you know, I encourage you to maybe just read through this. If you were to list those list those letters, B C paint, you'd be surprised at how much you actually retained when you used a mnemonic such as you know putting letters together like that. And even though it's a little bit silly, it doesn't really relate to it. I know it helped me even having silly mnemonics like this that aren't that relevant. You know, a better thing is, again, understanding or having a mnemonic that actually relates to, to the um, th- you know, topic in question. But I found this pretty useful. Uh, look, I think that's a great idea. And, you know, I think there actually is a BC Paint, isn't there? Um, is there? <laughs> I'm sure there's a company out there. <laughs> well, we won't forget it now. Yeah, it'll, um, it'll be in British, so, in, in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> get, get sponsorship um, from them. Yeah, that's right. Paint for CSF. Yeah, hey, look, I, I think it's really useful, and I think it's really good to have something like that as a starter, mm-hmm. as you start learning and start memorizing, because um, it just gives you that prompt, especially during the Viber. You know, when you get asked what are the functions of CSF, you can go, oh, right, um, BC Paint. And you see that sometimes when I ask trainees about um, mm-hmm. a question, they'll say, they'll actually, they'll actually tell me the, the mnemonic and then they'll start <laughs> naming them. And then obviously there'll be like one in the middle where they've gone A and they go, oh, what's A again? And, you know, like <laughs> they'll, they'll just forget it. But it's okay because yeah. they've actually, you know, a, a lot more other things 
um, that they wouldn't have if they didn't have the mnemonic. So I think I think it's a great technique to have, and I've and I've seen it uh, being used. Mm-hmm. And as you progress through your learning, what you'll find is that um, you know that it'll come naturally. That you don't sometimes you don't need to use the mnemonic. Um, but I think as you start off, yes, 100% agree. It's great, great to have it yep. there just as a backup. <laughs> like, a, like a fake it before you make it type thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Correct. Fake yep. it before you make it. <laughs> so let's go to that next one. So the next one was neuroendocrine functions of, of the brain. And, you know, this is really the anterior, anterior pituitary, posterior pituitary and the pineal gland. And, you know, just looking up actually on this really great blog called cambridgecoaching.com, um, there's a mnemonic here that was quite useful, which is flat peg. So for the anterior pituitary, flat peg stands for FSH, LH, ACTH, TSH, prolactin, endorphins, and GH. And so these are all your anterior, anterior pituitary hormones. The posterior pituitary is a bit easier. It's really just vasopressin and oxytocin. And I think the pineal gland then makes melatonin. So um, really, there's not too much to learn, uh, but I feel like having just a simple mnemonic, mnemonic like that to just, you know, I guess, take away all of that kind of memory or attention for the, uh, from your brain, that extra energy that it requires by just having a simple mnemonic. Again, fake it till you make it worked really well because we're not going to be endocrinologists here. We're after a first part exam and, it, you know, there's, you know, there's, it, it's probably a good way just to memorize this initially to get some runs on the board. Great. No, th- that's great. I like this uh, mnemonic flat peg. <laughs> flat peg. Um, flat peg. So that, 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 that's really all for neuro. Um, if anyone, if anyone has any other topics in neuro that, you know, that they managed to find really good memory aids for whatever they are, please, you know, please write into us um, at Stan, sorry, at Lahir and Stan at gmail.com. And yeah, we'll be happy to put those up because I think, you know, this is all about trying to share knowledge and trying to you know, find out what worked for different people and trying to share that out. Great. Fantastic. I think we've done well. Good, good. Yeah, that's about 30 minutes. That's good. (laughs) So I guess, yeah, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Um, The next episode, we'll go through some cardiovascular classifications. Um, But yeah, thanks for listening. Please share with anyone who might be interested doing this crazy exam. And uh, yeah, that's all for now. See you next time.